Thank you for joining us Around the Fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I have not yet met the woman in number 212. I don't even know her name. She never patronizes the hotel restaurant and she doesn't use the lobby. On the three occasions when we passed each other, we didn't speak, although we nodded in a semi-cordial, non-committal way. I should like very much to make her acquaintance. It is lonesome in this dreary place. With the exception of the aged man down the corridor, the only guests are the woman in number 212 and myself. However, I shouldn't complain. The quiet is precisely what the doctor ordered. I wonder if the woman in number 212, too, has come here to rest. She is so very pale. But her paleness is not sickly. It's rather wholesome in its ivory clarity. She appears tall, walking erectly with a brisk stride. She must have arrived in a car, for she certainly was not a passenger on the train that brought me, though she arrived very soon after myself. I had briefly rested in my room and was walking down the stairs when I encountered her ascending with her bag. I found it odd that the bellboy did not show her to her room. It is odd, too, that with so many vacant rooms in the hotel, she should have chosen number 212 at the extreme rear. The building is long and narrow, three stories high. The guest rooms inhabit the east side. The west contains an abandoned business building. The corridor is long and drab, and its stiff, cracking paper exudes a musty, unpleasant odor. The feeble electric bulbs that light it shine dimly as from a tomb. Revolted by this corridor, I insisted vigorously upon being given number 201, which is at the front and blessed with southern exposure. The room clerk, a disagreeable fellow with a hideous mustache, was very reluctant to let me have it, as it is normally reserved for some important guests. 
I fear my stubborn insistence has made him an enemy. If only I had been as self-assertive 30 years ago. I should now be a full-fledged professor instead of a broken-down assistant. Ah, <sighs> oh, well. The summer's rest will probably do me considerable good. It is pleasant to be away from the university. There is something positively gratifying about the absence of greasy student faces. If only it were not so lonely. I must devise a way of meeting the pale woman in number 212. Perhaps the clerk could assist. I have been here exactly a week, and if there is a friendly soul in this miserable little town, he has escaped my notice. The workers at the hotel and restaurant would accept my money with flattering eagerness, but studiously avoid even the most casual conversation. Despite the coolness of my reception, I have been frequently venturing about. In the back of my mind, I have kept hopes of encountering a woman at number 211. I wonder why she has moved from number 212. I can think of no advantage in coming only one room nearer to the front. I noticed the change yesterday when I saw her coming out of her new room. We nodded, again, and this time I thought I detected a smile in her somber black eyes. She must know that I'm eager to make her acquaintance, yet her manner forbids it. I'm not the sort to run after anybody. I wonder where the woman takes her meals. I've stopped visiting the hotel restaurant and began patronizing the restaurants outside. At each, I ask strangers about the pale woman and number 210. No one at any restaurant remembered her having been there. The pale woman must be difficult to please, for she has changed rooms again. I am baffled by her conduct. If she is so consumed by convenience, why not move to number 202, the nearest open room to the front? I see we're closer neighbors now, I could casually say when I see her again. Oh, but that is too mundane. I must await a better opportunity. She's done it again. She is now occupying number 209. I am desperately intrigued by her little game. I waste hours trying to fathom its point. What possible motive could she have? I should think she would get on the hotel people's nerves. I wonder what our combination bellhop chambermaid thinks of having to prepare four rooms for a single guest. I am tremendously interested in the pale woman's next move. She will either have to skip a room or remain where she is. The permanent guest, a very old man, stays in number 208. He hasn't budged from his room since I've been here. I wonder what the woman will do. I await her decision with the nervous excitement of a fan at a sporting event. <laughs> To be fair, I have so little diversion. The man in number 208 simplified manners by conveniently dying. No one knows the cause of death, though we can assume old age. He was buried this morning. I was among the curious few in attendance at his funeral. 
When I returned home from the service, I saw the pale woman leaving his room. She had already moved in. She smiled at me. And I can't help but believe that she meant it to have some significance. Like there's a secret between us that I failed to appreciate. But perhaps it was meaningless after all. The woman of mystery has moved to number 207, and I am not the least surprised. I'd have been astonished if she didn't move on schedule. I did not know a single thing more about her than I knew the day we arrived. I have almost given up trying to understand her behavior. I wonder where she came from. There's something indefinably foreign about her. Oh, I'd love to hear her voice. I imagine she speaks with an exotic tongue of a faraway country. If only I could find a way to make conversation. This morning, I awoke to find myself sprawled across the floor. I was fully clothed. I must have fallen there exhausted after returning to my room last night. Perhaps my condition is more serious than suspected. Maybe my peers at the college never expected to see me alive again. I can say in all sincerity that the prospect of death does not frighten me. Speculation about life beyond the grave has always bored me. Whatever it is, or is not, well, try to get along. <laughs> of course, I'm not that unwell. Nevertheless, I, I must be more careful. I called a local doctor, whom I suspect to be a quack. He looked me over with indifference and told me not to leave my room. For some reason, he doesn't want me climbing the stairs. With that, he left. <laughs> I'd rather a pickpocket take the bills directly from my purse. I have been so preoccupied about the sudden turn of my own affairs that I have neglected to make note of the most extraordinary incident. The pale woman skipped three rooms and moved all the way to number 203. We are now very close neighbors, and my chances for making her acquaintance are now greater. The woman is up to her old tricks. Last night, when I stepped into the hall, the door of number 202 was ajar. Without thinking, I looked inside. The pale woman sat in a rocking chair, smoking a cigarette. She looked up into my eyes and smiled, that peculiar, ambiguous smile that has so deeply puzzled me. I moved on down the corridor, not so much mystified as annoyed. The whole mystery of the woman's conduct is beginning to irk me. It is all so utterly lacking in motive. In that moment, I decided that though we may never meet, I would learn her identity. I summoned the clerk to my room. Please tell me, I asked abruptly, who is the woman in the room next door? The clerk stared wearily and uncomprehendedly. You must be mistaken. That room is unoccupied. Oh, but it is, I snapped in irritation. Room 202. The hotel man regarded me dubiously, as if I were trying to impose upon him. I assure you, there's no one in that room. I have seen her myself. She is tall, with dark eyes and hair. She is unusually pale. She checked in the day I arrived, shortly after. But I assure you, there is no such person. 
As for her checking in when you did, you were the only guest we registered that day. What? Why, I've seen her twenty times. First she had number 212 at the end of the corridor, and then she kept moving towards the front, and now she is next door in 202. The room clerk threw up his hands. You're crazy. He meant what he said. I shut up at once and dismissed him. After he had gone, I, I heard him rattling the knob of the pale woman's door. There's no doubt that he believes the room to be empty. Now, I understand the events of the past few weeks. I now comprehend the significance of the death in number 208. I even feel partly responsible for the old man's passing. After all, I brought the pale woman with me. I did not set her path. Why she went room after room, crossing the threshold of the man at number 208, I can't explain. I suppose I should have guessed her identity when she skipped three rooms the night I fell unconscious upon the floor. In a single night of triumph, she was almost to my door. And she will be here soon to inhabit this room. And when she does, I will finally return her smile of grim recognition. In the meantime, I wait behind my bolted door. Doctors had given him just one month to live, a month to wonder what comes afterward. There was one way to find out. Ask a dead man. The amber brown of the liquor disguised the poison it held, and I watched with a smile on my lips as he drank it. There was no pity in my heart for him. He was a jackal in the jungle of life, and I, I was one of the carnivores. It is the lot of the jackals of life to be devoured by the carnival. Suddenly, the contented look on his face froze into a startled stillness. I knew he was feeling the first savage twinge of the agony that was to come. He turned his head and looked at me and I saw suddenly that he knew what I had done. You murderer! He cursed me. And then his body arched in the middle and his voice choked off deep in his throat. For a short minute he sat, tense, his body stiffened by the agony that rode it, unable to move a muscle. I watched the torment in his eyes build up to a crescendo of pain, until the suffering became so great that it filmed his eyes, and I knew that, though he still stared directly at me, he no longer saw me. Then, as suddenly as the spasm had come, the starch went out of his body, and his back slid slowly down the chair edge. He landed heavily with his head resting limply against the seat of the chair. His right leg doubled up in a kind of jerk before he was still. I knew the time had come. Where are you? I asked. This moment had cost me $60,000. Three weeks ago, the best doctors in the state had given me a month to live. And with $7 million in the bank, 
I couldn't buy a minute more. I accepted the doctor's decision philosophically, like the gambler that I am. But I had a plan, one which necessity had never forced me to use until now. Several years before, I had read an article about the medicine men of a certain tribe of aborigines living in the jungles at the source of the Amazon River. They had discovered a process in which the juice of a certain bush, known only to them, could be used to poison a man. Anyone subjected to this poison died, but for a few minutes after the life left his body, the medicine men could still converse with him. The subject, though ostensibly and actually dead, answered the medicine men's every question. This was their primitive, though reportedly effective method of catching glimpses of what lay in the world of death. I had conceived my idea at the time I read the article, but I had never had the need to use it until the doctors gave me a month to live. Then I spent my $60,000 and three weeks later I held in my hands a small bottle of the witch doctor's fluid. The next step was to secure my victim, my collaborator, I preferred to call him. The man I chose was a nobody, a homeless, friendless, non-entity picked up off the street. He had once been an educated man, but now he was only a bum. And when he died, he'd never be missed. A perfect man for my experiment. I'm a rich man because I have a system. The system is simple. I never make a move until I know exactly where that move will lead me. My field of operation is the stock market. I spend money unstintingly to secure the information I need before I take each step. I hire the best investigators, bribe employees and persons in position to give me the information I want. And only when I am as certain as humanly possible that I cannot be wrong do I move. And the system never fails. Seven million dollars in the bank is proof of that. Now, knowing that I could not live, I intended to make the system work for me one last time before I died. I'm a firm believer in the adage that any situation can be whipped, given prior knowledge of its coming, and of course, its attendant circumstances. Where are you? I repeated louder and sharper this time. For a moment he did not answer and I began to fear that my experiment had failed. Slowly, slowly, unnaturally, as though energized by some hyper-rational power, his lips and tongue moved. The small muscles about his eyes puckered with an unnormal tension while the rest of his face held its death frost. The words he spoke were clear. I am in a, a tunnel, he said. It is lighted, dimly, but there is nothing for me to see. Blue veins showed through the flesh of his cheeks, like watermarks on translucent paper. He paused, and I urged, Go on. I am alone, he said. The realities I knew no longer exist. I am damp and cold. All about me is a sense of gloom and dejection. The walls to either side of me seem to be formed, not of substance, but rather of... The soundless cries of melancholy, of spirits I cannot see. I am waiting, waiting in the gloom for something which will come to me, and I have no thought of questioning it. His voice died again. What are you waiting for? I asked. 
I do not know, he said, his voice dreary with the despair of centuries of hopelessness. I only know that I must wait. The tone of his voice changed slightly. The tunnel about me is widening, and now the walls have receded into invisibility. The tunnel has become a plain, but the plain is as desolate, as forlorn and dreary as was the tunnel, and still I stand and wait. How long must this go on? He fell silent again, and I was about to prompt him with another question. I could not afford to let the time run out in long silences. But abruptly, the muscles about his eyes tightened, and subtly a new aspect replaced their hopeless dejection. Now they expressed a black, bottomless terror. For a moment I marvelled that so small a portion of a facial anatomy could express such horror. There is something coming toward me, he said. A beast of brutish foulness. Beast is too inadequate a term to describe it, but I know no words to tell its form. And it is coming closer. It has no organs of sight as I know them, but I feel it can see me. Or rather, that it is aware of me, with a sense sharper than vision itself. It is very near now. The expression of terrified anticipation centred in his eyes, lessened slightly, and was replaced instantly by its former deep, deep despair. I am no longer afraid, he said. Why? I interjected. Why? I was impatient to learn all that I could before the end came. Because... He paused. Because it holds no threat for me. Somehow, someday I understand, I know, that it too is seeking that for which I wait. What is it doing now? I asked. It has stopped beside me and we stand together, gazing across the stark, empty plain. Now a second awful entity, with the same leashed virulence about it, moves up and stands at my other side. We all three wait, myself with a dark fear of this dismal universe, my unnatural companions with patient, malicious menace. Bits of... He faltered. Of... I can name it only Aura, go out from the beasts like an acid stream and touch me, and the hate and the venom chill my body like a wave of intense cold. Now there are others of this awful breed behind me. We stand, waiting, waiting, for that which will come. What it is I do not know. I could see the pallor of death creeping steadily into the last corners of his lips, and I knew that the end was not far away. Suddenly, a black frustration built up within me. What are you waiting for? I screamed. I knew that the answer held the secret of what I must know. If I could learn that, my experiment would not be in vain. I had to know that answer. Think, think, I pleaded. What are you waiting for? I do not know. The dreary despair in his eyes, sightless as they met mine, chilled me with a coldness that I felt in the marrow of my being. I do not know, he repeated. I... yes, I do know. Abruptly, 
The plasmatic film cleared from his eyes, and I knew that for the first time since the poison struck, he was seeing me clearly. I sensed that this was the last moment before he left for good. It had to be now. Tell me, I command you, I cried. What are you waiting for? His voice was quiet as he murmured softly, implacably, before he was gone. We are waiting, he said, for you. Years ago, only a few miles away from what is now Cincinnati, lay a huge and almost endless forest. The area had a few settlements, but many of them had already been left as people headed further west. Among those remaining was a man who had been one of the first people to arrive in the area. The man's name was said to be Murloc. Though he was middle-aged, he appeared to be in his 70s. His hair and long, full beard were white. His gray, lifeless eyes were sunken. His face was wrinkled. He was tall and thin with drooping shoulders. Something other than time had been the cause of his aging. His modest log cabin was surrounded on all sides by the great forest. The darkness and silence of the trees were a proper fit, as no one ever knew him to smile or speak an unnecessary word. He met his needs by selling and trading the skins of wild animals. The home had a single door directly opposite a window, which was boarded up. No one could remember a time when it was not, and no one knew why it had been closed. As the man was known to spend the days in the sun, he surely would have enjoyed the light and air. Eventually, Murloc was found in his cabin, dead. It was not the time or place for medical examinations or newspapers. It was agreed that he had died from natural causes, and his body was buried near the cabin. He was laid to rest next to his wife, who had died so long before that that she almost felt like a legend herself. When Murloc built his cabin, he was young, strong, and full of hope. He began the hard work of creating a farm. He kept a rifle and used it to hunt. He had married a young woman, in all ways worthy of his honest love and loyalty. 
She shared the dangers of life with a willing spirit and a light heart. There is no known record of her name or details about her. They loved each other and were happy. One day Murloc returned from hunting in a deep part of the forest. He found his wife sick with fever and confusion. There was no doctor or neighbor within miles, and he knew that he couldn't leave her alone to find help. So Murloc tried to take care of his wife and return her to good health. But at the end of the third day, she fell into unconsciousness and died. He was surprised that he did not cry, surprised and a little ashamed. Surely it is unkind not to cry for the dead. Murloc had sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for burial. He made a mistake now and again while performing this special duty. He did certain things wrong, and others, which he did correctly, were done over and over again. Once she was buried, he thought to himself he would miss her. He stood over the body of his wife in the disappearing light. He fixed the hair and made finishing touches to the rest. He did all of this without thinking, but with care. Murloc had no experience in deep sadness, an artist of powers that affects people in different ways. His heart could not contain it all. His imagination could not understand it. To one it comes like the stroke of an arrow, shocking all the emotions to a sharper life. To another it comes as the blow of a crushing strike. Murloc did not know he was so hard struck. That knowledge would come later and never leave. Soon after he had finished his work, he sank into a chair by the side of the table upon which the body lay. He stared at his wife's face in the deepening darkness. He laid his arms upon the table's edge and dropped his head onto them, tearless and very sleepy. At that moment, a long, screaming sound came in through the open window. It was like the cry of a lost child in the far deep of the darkening forest. But the man did not move. He heard that unearthly cry upon his failing sense, again and nearer than before. Maybe it was a wild animal, or maybe it was a dream. For Murloc was asleep. Some hours later, he awoke, lifted his head from his arms, and listened closely. He knew not why. There, in the black darkness by the side of the body, he remembered everything without a shock. He strained his eyes to see... he knew not what. His senses were all alert. His breath was suspended. His blood was still, as if to assist the silence. Who, what, had awakened him? Where was it? Suddenly the table shook under his arms. At the same time he heard, or imagined he heard, a light, soft step, and then another. The sounds of bare feet walking upon the floor. He was afraid beyond the power to cry out or move. He waited, waited there in the darkness through what seemed like centuries of such fear. Fear as one may know, but yet live to tell. He tried but failed to speak the dead woman's name. He tried but failed to stretch his hand across the table to learn if she was there. His throat was powerless. His arms and hands were like lead. Then something most frightful happened. 
It seemed as if a heavy body was thrown against the table with a force that pushed against his chest. At the same time, he heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor. It was so violent a crash that the whole house shook. A fight followed and a confusion of sounds impossible to describe. Murlock had risen to his feet. Extreme fear had caused him to lose control of his senses. He threw his hands upon the table. Nothing was there. There is a point at which fear may turn to insanity, and insanity incites to action. With no definite plan and acting like a madman, Murlock ran quickly to the wall. He seized his loaded rifle and without aim, fired it. The flash from the rifle lit the room with a clear brightness. He saw a huge, fierce panther dragging the dead woman toward the window. The wild animal's teeth were fixed on her throat. Then there was darkness blacker than before, and silence. When he returned to consciousness, the sun was high and the forest was filled with the sounds of singing birds. The body lay near the window, where the animal had left it when frightened away by the light and sound of the rifle. Her clothing was ruined, her long hair in disorder. Her arms and legs lay in a careless way, and a pool of blood flowed from her horribly torn throat. In her mouth, clenched between her teeth, was a piece of the animal's ear. I had loved her madly. Why does one love? Why does one love? How queer it is to see only one being in the world, to have only one thought in one's mind, only one desire in the heart, and only one name on the lips, a name which comes up continually, which rises like the water in a spring, from the depths of the soul, which rises to the lips, and which one repeats over and over again, which one whispers ceaselessly, everywhere, like a prayer. I am going to tell you our story, for love only has one, which is always the same. I met her and loved her, that is all. And for a whole year I have lived on her tenderness, on her caresses, in her arms, in her dresses, on her words, so completely wrapped up, bound, imprisoned in everything which came from her that I no longer knew whether it was day or night, if I was dead or alive on this old earth of ours, or elsewhere. And then she died. How? I do not know. I no longer know. But one evening she came home wet, for it was raining heavily. And the next day she coughed, and she coughed for about a week, and took to her bed. What happened I do not remember now. But doctors came, wrote, and went away. Medicines were brought, and some women made her drink them. Her hands were hot, her forehead was burning, and her eyes bright and sad. When I spoke to her, she answered me, 
but I do not remember what we said. I have forgotten everything. 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 She died, and I very well remember her slight, feeble sigh. The nurse said, Ah, and I understood. I understood. I knew nothing more. Nothing. I saw a priest who said, Your mistress? And it seemed to me as if he were insulting her. As she was dead, nobody had the right to know that any longer, and I turned him out. Another came who was very kind and tender, and I shed tears when he spoke to me about her. They consulted me about the funeral, but I do not remember anything that they said, though I recollected the coffin and the sound of the hammer when they nailed her down in it. Oh, God. God. She was buried. Buried, she. In that hole. Some people came. Female friends. I made my escape and ran away. I ran. And then I walked through the streets and went home. And the next day, I started on a journey. Yesterday, I returned to Paris. And when I saw my room again, our room, our bed, our furniture, everything that remains of the life of a human being after death, I was seized by such a violent attack of fresh grief that I was very near opening the window and throwing myself out into the street, as I could not remain any longer among these things between these walls which had enclosed and sheltered her, and which retained a thousand atoms of her, of her skin and of her breath in their imperceptible crevices, I took up my hat to make my escape, and just as I reached the door, I passed the large glass in the hall, which she had put there so that she might be able to look at herself every day, from head to foot, as she went out, to see if her toilette looked well, and was correct and pretty, from her little boots to her bonnet. And I stopped short in front of that looking glass, in which she had so often been reflected. So often, so often, that it also must have retained her reflection. I was standing there, trembling with my eyes fixed on the glass, on that flat, profound, empty glass, which had contained her entirely, and had possessed her as much as I had, as my passionate looks had. I felt as if I loved that glass. I touched it cold. Oh, the recollection. Sorrowful mirror, burning mirror, horrible mirror, which makes us suffer such torments. Happy are the men whose hearts forget everything that it has contained, everything that has passed before it, everything that has looked at itself in it, that has been reflected in its affection, in its love. How I suffer. I went on without knowing it, without wishing it. I went towards the cemetery. I found her simple grave, a white marble cross with these few words. She loved, was loved, and died. She is there, below, decayed. I sobbed with my forehead on the ground, and I stopped there for a long time, a long time. Then I saw that it was getting dark, and a strange, a mad wish, the wish of a despairing lover, seized me. I wished to pass the night, the last night, in weeping on her grave. But I should have been seen and driven out. How was I to manage? 
I was cunning, and got up and began to roam about in that city of the dead. I walked and walked. How small this city is in comparison with the other, the city in which we live, and yet how much more numerous the dead are than the living. We want high houses, wide streets, and much room for the four generations who see the daylight at the same time, drink water from the spring, and wine from the vines, and eat the bread from the plains. And for all the generations of the dead, for all that ladder of humanity that has descended down to us, there is scarcely anything afield, scarcely anything. The earth takes them back, oblivion effaces them. Adieu. At the end of the abandoned cemetery, I suddenly perceived that the one where those who have been dead a long time finish mingling with the soil, where the crosses themselves decay, where the last comers will be put tomorrow. It is full of untended roses, of strong and dark cypress trees, a sad and beautiful garden nourished on human flesh. I was alone, perfectly alone, and so I crouched in a green tree and hid myself there completely among the thick and somber branches. And I waited, clinging to the stem, like a shipwrecked man does to a plank. When it was quite dark, I left my refuge and began to walk softly, slowly, inaudibly, through that ground full of dead people. And I wandered about for a long time, but could not find her again. I went on with extended arms, knocking against the tombs with my hands, my feet, my knees, my chest, even my head, without being able to find her. I touched and felt about like a blind man groping his way. I felt the stones, the crosses, the iron railings, the metal wreaths, and the wreaths of faded flowers. I read the names with my fingers by passing them over the letters. What a night! What a night! I could not find her again. There was no moon. What a night. I am frightened, horribly frightened, in these narrow paths between two rows of graves. 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 Nothing but graves. On my right, on my left, in front of me, around me, everywhere there were graves. I sat down on one of them, for I could not walk any longer. My knees were so weak. I could hear my heart beat, and I could hear something else as well. What? A confused, nameless noise. Was the noise in my head in the impenetrable night, or beneath the mysterious earth, the earth sown with human corpses? I looked all around me, but I cannot say how long I remained there. I was paralyzed with terror, drunk with fright, ready to shout out, ready to die. Suddenly it seemed to me as if the slab of marble on which I was sitting was moving. Certainly it was moving, as if it were being raised. With a bound, I sprang onto the neighboring tomb, and I saw, yes, I distinctly saw the stone which I had just quitted rise upright, and the dead person appeared, a naked skeleton, which was pushing the stone back with its bent back. I saw it, quite clearly, although the night was so dark. 
On the cross I could read, Here lies Jacques Ollivant, who died at the age of 51. He loved his family, was kind and honorable, and died in the grace of the Lord. The dead man also read what was inscribed on his tombstone. Then he picked up a stone off the path, a little pointed stone, and began to scrape the letters carefully. He slowly effaced them all together, and with the hollows of his eyes he looked at the places where they had been engraved, and with the tip of the bone that had been his forefinger, he wrote in luminous letters, like those lines which one traces on walls with the tip of a lucifer match, Here reposes Jacques Ollivant, who died at the age of fifty-one. He hastened his father's death by his unkindness, as he wished to inherit his fortune. He tortured his wife, tormented his children, deceived his neighbors, robbed everyone he could, and died wretched. When he had finished writing, the dead man stood motionless, looking at his work, and on turning round I saw that all the graves were open, that all the dead bodies had emerged from them, and that all had effaced the lies inscribed on the gravestones by their relations, and had substituted the truth instead. And I saw that all had been tormentors of their neighbors, malicious, dishonest, hypocrites, liars, rogues, calumniators, envious. That they had stolen, deceived, performed every disgraceful, every abominable action. These good fathers, these faithful wives, these devoted sons, these chaste daughters, these honest tradesmen these men and women who were called irreproachable, and they were called irreproachable, and they were all writing at the same time, on the threshold of their eternal abode, the truth, the terrible and the holy truth, which everybody is ignorant of, or pretends to be ignorant of, while the others are alive. I thought that she also must have written something on her tombstone, and now, running without any fear among the half-open coffins, among the corpses and skeletons, I went towards her, sure that I should find her immediately. I recognized her at once without seeing her face, which was covered by the winding sheet, and on the marble cross where shortly before I had read, she loved, was loved, and died, I now saw, having gone out one day in order to deceive her lover, she caught cold in the rain and died. They found me at daybreak, lying on the grave. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, 
a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of its intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me whenever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character had experienced a radical alteration for the worst. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife, and at length I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him! and in his fright at my violence he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. He went about the house as usual but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me, but this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came the spirit of perverseness. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cold blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart hung it because I knew that it had loved me and had given me no reason of offense, hung it 
because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to it having been recently spread. About this wall a dense crowd had collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. Their words, strange, singular, and other similar expressions, excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. My wonder and my terror were extreme, but at length, Reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd. Someone must have cut down the animal from the tree and thrown it through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture, as I saw it. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance, to take its place. One night, as I sat, half stupefied, in some den of infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to a black object reposing on the head of one of the immense casks of gin, which constituted the chief furniture of this apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this cask for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, and a very large one. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but 
This person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, and had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once, and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated. I know not how or why it was, but its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed me. These feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, yet a certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty prevented me from physically abusing it. What added, no doubt, to my hatred of the beast was the discovery, on the morning after I brought it home, that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I already have said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which once had been my distinguishing trait. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps. Whenever I sat, it would spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long and sharp claws in my clothes, clamor in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from doing so, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly by absolute dread of the beast. My wife had called attention to the character of the mark of white hair which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. This mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which, for a long time, my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name, and for this above all I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, the gallows. Neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the day the creature left me no moment alone, and in the night I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates. The darkest, 
and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outburst of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day, she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. I uplifted an axe, forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal which would have proved instantly fatal had the axe descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonical. I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without running the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it into the well in the yard, or packing it in a box like merchandise and getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks in the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed, and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. In one of the walls was a projection, caused by a false chimney or fireplace, that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I had no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no one could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it had originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old. With this I carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubble on the floor, the only evidence of my work, I picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here, at least then, my labor has not been in vain. 
My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at that moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster, in terror, had fled the premises forever. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. A search had even been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as finally secure. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. My heart beat as calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee in my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say a word by way of triumph, and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I am delighted to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the way, gentlemen, this... This is a very well-constructed house. These walls are, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. I rapped heavily upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of my wife. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exalt in the damnation. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, party on the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast 
whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. It was a few nights before Christmas, and the locals were busy making extensive preparations for the festival. The narrow streets, usually thronged with people, were now almost deserted, and the last shops open were rapidly closing for the night. In the comfortable coffee room of the old Boar's Head, half a dozen guests, mostly travelers for work, sat talking by the light of the fire. The talk had drifted from trade to politics, from politics to religion, and naturally from religion to the supernatural. The first three stories fell flat, though they'd never failed before. It may have been the noise from outside or the well-lit interior of the room. A man snuffed the lanterns before telling the fourth story, and the streets had gone quiet and the room was enthralled. So enthralled that the entire group gasped when the waiter, George, spoke from the dark corner of the room, having been temporarily forgotten by the others. That's what I call a good story, he said in the low, flickering light of the fire. But there's a ghost in this very house, you know. The others, even the locals, hadn't heard of it. It dates back a long time now, the gentleman continued. But surely one of you has heard the name of Jerry Bundler. One of the others, a man named Hurst, spoke up. Well, I've just heard odds and ends, but I never put much count to them. But the staff would be sacked prompt if they even mentioned it. It's true, continued George. My father worked here before me and knew the story well. He was a truthful man and steady churchgoer, and he swore until he died that he had seen the ghost of Jerry Bundler in this house. He was a vagabond pickpocket and thief who checked in for Christmas some eighty years ago. He ate his last supper right here where we sit and went up to bed. A pocket watch had fallen from his pack to the floor, but when a runner attempted to deliver it to his room, not knowing it was stolen property, of course, there was no answer from the stout oak door. Assuming he'd fallen quickly asleep, they set the watch aside for him to retrieve at breakfast. In the morning, the man remained in his room. As the afternoon neared, the staff knocked on his door once again, obtaining no answer. One worker went out to the courtyard and with a short ladder climbed onto the windowsill while another waited outside the door. With a sudden smash of glass, the worker fell with a cry and landed in a heap on the stones below. As others gathered around him, they saw the pale face of the thief peeping down from the window above. Others joined the runner to break the door in, which had now been barred by heavy furniture. When they finally gained entrance, the first thing that met their eyes was the man's body, dangling from the top of the bed by his own handkerchief. Which bedroom was it? A man named Malcolm asked. The waiter shook his head. That I can't tell you, 
but the story goes that Bundler still haunts this house, and my father declared positively that the last time he slept here, the spirit lowered himself from the top of his bed and tried to strangle him. The group grumbled, eager to guess in which room the terrible events took place. There's nothing to fear, the waiter continued. I don't believe for a moment that ghosts could really hurt someone. My father confessed that it was the unpleasantness of it all that upset him the most. Jerry's fingers might have been made of cotton wool for all the harm they could do. A mix of frightened and frustrated, the bulk of the group began heading to bed. George refilled a handful of whiskey glasses for the men that remained, before leaving the room to begin his final tasks of the evening. Hurst scoffed at the waiter's bravery, telling the others he'd find a way to put him to the test. Leaving the fire, he ran lightly up the stairs to his room to wrangle about his proceedings. Nearly half an hour passed, and the others began to grow bored. Two more men had retired from the fire to their bedrooms, leaving only a pair left downstairs. Suddenly, George burst into the room and rushed towards them. He's here, he shouted breathlessly, but the men only laughed. In the kitchen, I didn't look for CNM. There's only a glimmer of light in there, and he was sitting on the floor behind the counter. I nearly trod on him. The others continued laughing. You're frightened, George, Malcolm said. You'll never make a man. Well, it took me unawares, said the waiter. Not that I'd have gone to the kitchen by myself if I'd known he was there, and I don't believe you would either, sir. Nonsense, the man retorted. I'll go and fetch him now. But George stopped him with a catch of his sleeve. You don't know what it's like, sir. It ain't fit to look by yourself. He was cut off by a smothered cry from the staircase and the sounds of someone stomping along the passage. Suddenly, the door flew open and a figure burst into the room. George yelled in fear and stumbled backwards as the others made fun. Lighting the lantern, George could now see it was only Hurst. He had changed into knee breeches and a coat, a massive wig gone awry, and his face was fully greased. As the light flickered in the glass of the windows, the group realized that Hurst was trembling and gasping for air. I've seen it, said Hurst with a hysterical sob. Him, it, the ghost, whatever it is. I was coming down the stairs and I felt a tap. He broke off suddenly and peered nervously through the open door into the passage. I thought I saw it again, he whispered. No, there's nothing there, said George, whose own voice shook a little. Go on, you felt a tap on your shoulder. I turned round and saw it. A wicked, pale, white, dead face. That's what I saw in the kitchen, said George. Hurst shuddered and dropped into a chair. It's the last time I come to this house, he stated. I leave tomorrow myself, said George. I wouldn't return to that kitchen again for fifty pounds. It's uttering the man's name that caused it, I expect, said Hurst. Having it in our minds... Practically, we've been forming a spiritualistic circle without knowing it. It's odd that they should both think they saw something, said Malcolm, feeling uneasy for the first time. I saw it as plain as I see you, sir, said George solemnly. Perhaps if you keep your eyes turned up the passage, you'll see it for yourself. They followed the direction of his finger, but saw nothing. We'll come down to the kitchen with me, said Malcolm, looking around. You can go if you like said Hurst. We'll wait here for you. The stout traveler walked towards the door and took a few steps up the passage. Then he stopped. 
all was quite silent, and he walked slowly to the end and looked down fearfully towards the glass partition which shut off the kitchen. As he neared, he couldn't bring himself to go to it, and looking over his shoulder, rushed back to the room. "'Did you see it, sir?' whispered George. "'Nothing at all,' said Malcolm shortly. "'Even as I fancy seeing anything just now, I saw nothing.' Hurst sighed and finished his glass of whiskey. "'Oh, I feel better now. I dare say you think I'm easily scared, but you didn't see it.' "'Not at all,' said Malcolm, smiling faintly despite himself. "'I'm going to bed.' said Hurst, noticing the smile and resenting it. He rose from his seat and bid the company a friendly good night. Having heard his door close, Malcolm said, I never saw a man so scared in all my life. Sort of poetic justice about it, isn't there? But as he looked to George and the others, he saw fear in their eyes. One of them asked if anyone wanted to share a room for the night. I will, said Malcolm. The other man who remained, Mr. Leek, scoffed. "'I don't believe in ghosts,' he said. "'If anything comes into my room, I'll simply shoot it.' "'Bullets don't pierce spirits, Mr. Leek,' George suggested. "'Well, the noise would certainly wake the whole house,' he laughed. "'But if you're nervous, sir, the others will be only too pleased for you to sleep on the doormat inside their room, surely. "'If you gentlemen would only come down with me to put the gas out, I could never be sufficiently grateful.' Malcolm and his newfound roommate joined him, peering carefully before them as they went. They snuffed the light without issue and returned to the lobby, extinguishing the gas there, too, and leaving the small group in the dim light of a single candle. Suddenly, they distinctly heard a step in the passage outside. It stopped at the door, and as they watched with bated breath, the door creaked and slowly opened. Malcolm fell back open-mouthed as a white, leering face with sunken eyeballs and close-cropped bullet head appeared at the opening. For a few seconds, the creature stood regarding them, blinking in a strange fashion at the candle. Then, with a sliding movement, it came a little way into the room and stood there as if bewildered. Not a man spoke or moved, but all watched with a horrible fascination as the creature removed its dirty neckcloth, its broken neck allowing his head to flop onto its shoulder. For a minute it paused and then moved toward George with the cloth outstretched. There was a sudden flash and loud crashing noise and the candle went out. In the pitch black, the men heard the sounds of a chair moving and something writhing on the floor. George struck a match and leapt to light the burner again. Malcolm felt ahead of him, touching the thing on the floor and finding it soft. With the candle lit again, he kneeled down and examined the thing, then rose swiftly, dipping his handkerchief into the water jug and returning to wipe away the white face. Leek's pistol fell to the floor as Malcolm sprang back with a cry of incredulous horror, leaning against the wall, deathly sick, and falling into the waiter's arms. Nobody spoke. They simply stared, spellbound, at the still, dead face of Hurst on the floor before them.
During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I knew not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic sentiment, with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few ranked sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it? I paused to think. What was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of Usher? It was a mystery all unsoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that while beyond doubt there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us. Still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful oppression. And acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay an unruffled luster by the dwelling and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the gray sedge and the ghastly tree stems and the vacant and eye-like windows. Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom, I now proposed to myself a sojourn of some weeks. Its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, had lately reached me in a distant part of the country. A letter from him, which in its wildly importunate nature had admitted of no other than a personal reply. The MS gave evidence of nervous agitation. The writer spoke of acute bodily illness, of a mental disorder which oppressed him, and an earnest desire to see me as his best and, indeed, his only personal friend, with a view of attempting, by the cheerfulness of my society, some alleviation of his malady. It was the manner in which all this and much more was said 
It was the apparent heart that went with his request, which allowed me no room for hesitation, and I accordingly obeyed forthwith what I still considered a very singular summons. Although as boys we had been even intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. His reserve had been always excessive and habitual. I was aware, however, that his very ancient family had been noted, time out of mind, for a peculiar sensibility of temperament, displaying itself through long ages in many works of exalted art, and manifested of late in repeated deeds of munificent yet unobtrusive charity, as well as in a passionate devotion to the interests, perhaps even more than to the orthodox and easily recognizable beauties of musical science. I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the usher race, all time-honored as it was, had put forth at no period any enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descent, and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variation, so lain. It was this deficiency I considered, while running over the thought, the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people, while speculating upon the possible influence which the one, in this long lapse of centuries, might have exercised upon the other. It was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue, and the consequent undeviating transmission from sire to son of the patrimony of the name which had at length so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include in the minds of the peasantry who used it both the family and the family mansion. I have said that the sole effect of my somewhat childish experiment that of looking down within the tarn, had been to deepen the first singular impression. There can be no doubt that the consciousness of the rapid increase of my superstition, for why should I not so term it, served mainly to accelerate the increase itself. Such I have long known, is the paradoxical law of all sentiments having terror as a basis. And it might have been for this reason only, that when I again uplifted my eyes to the house itself from its image in the pool, there grew in my mind a strange fancy, a fancy so ridiculous indeed, that I but mention it to show the vivid force of the sensations which oppressed me. I had so worked upon my imagination as reality to believe that about the whole mansion and domain there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves and their immediate vicinity, an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and the silent tarn, a pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. Shaking off from my spirit what must have been a dream, I scanned more narrowly the real aspect of the building. Its principal features seemed to be that of an excessive antiquity. The discoloration of ages had been great. 
minute fungi overspread the whole exterior, hanging in a fine, tangled webwork from the eaves. Yet all this was apart from any extraordinary dilapidation. No portion of the masonry had fallen, and there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. In this there was much that reminded me of the spacious totality of old woodwork, which has rotted for long years in some neglected vault. With no disturbance from the breath of the external air, beyond this indication of extensive decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability. Perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure which, extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. Noticing these things, I rode over a short causeway to the house. A servant-in-waiting took my horse, and I entered the gothic archway of the hall. A valet of stately step thence conducted me in silence through many dark and intricate passages in my progress to the studio of his master. Much that I encountered on the way contributed, I know not how, to heighten the vague sentiments of which I have already spoken, while the objects around me, while the carvings of the ceilings, the somber tapestries of the walls, the on blackness of the floors, phantasmagoric armorial trophies which rattled as I strode, were but matters to which, or to such as which, I had been accustomed from my infancy. While I hesitated not to acknowledge how familiar was all this, I still wondered to find how unfamiliar were the fancies which ordinary images were stirring up. On one of the staircases I met the physician of the family. His countenance, I thought, wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. He accosted me with trepidation and passed on. The valet now threw open a door and ushered me into the presence of his master. The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed, and so vast a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of encrimsoned light made their way through the trellised panes and served to render sufficiently distant the more prominent object around. The eye, however, struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the chamber or the recesses of the vaulted and fretted ceiling. Dark draperies hung upon the walls. The general furniture was profuse, comfortless, antique, and tattered. Many books and musical instruments lay scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that I breathed an atmosphere of sorrow, an air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher arose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length, and greeted me with a vivacious warmth which had much in it. I at first thought of an overdone cordiality, of the constrained effort of the ennui man of the world. A glance, however, at his countenance convinced me of his perfect sincerity. We sat down, and from some moments, while he spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe. Surely, man had never before so terribly 
altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It was with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the wan being before me with the companion of my early boyhood, yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable. A cadaverous of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surprisingly beautiful curve, a nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations, a finely molded chin, speaking in its want of prominence, of a want of moral energy, hair of a more than web-like softness in tenuity, these features with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easy to be forgotten. And now, in the mere exaggeration of the prevailing character of these features, and of the expression they were wont to convey, lay so much of change that I doubted to whom I spoke. The now ghastly pallor of the skin, and the now miraculous luster of the eye, above all things startled and even awed me. The silken hair, too, had been suffered to grow all unheeded and as, in its wild gossamer texture, it floated rather than fell about the face, I could not, even with effort, connect its arabesque expression with any idea of simple humanity. In the manner of my friend, I was at once struck with an incoherence, an inconsistency, and I soon found this to arise from a series of feeble and futile struggles to overcome an habitual trepidancy an excessive nervous agitation. For something of this nature I had indeed been prepared, no less by his letter, than by reminiscence of certain boyish traits, and by conclusions deduced from his peculiar physical conformation and temperament. His action was alternately vivacious and sullen. His voice varied rapidly from a tremulous indecision, when the animal spirits seemed utterly in abeyance, to the species of energetic concision, that abrupt, weighty, unhurried, and hollow-sounding enunciation, that leaden self-balance and perfectly modulated guttural utterance, which may be observed in the lost drunkard or the irreclaimable eater of opium during the periods of his most intense excitement. It was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit, of his earnest desire to see me and of the solace he expected me to afford him. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and family evil, and one for which he despaired to find a remedy, a mere nervous affection. He immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unusual sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me, although perhaps the terms and the general manager of the narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light, and there were but peculiar sounds and these from stringed instruments 
which did not inspire him with horror. To an anomalous species of terror I found him a burdened slave. I shall perish, said he. I must perish in this deplorable folly. Thus, thus, and not otherwise, shall I be lost. I dread the event of the future not in themselves, but in the results. I shudder at the thought of any, even the most trivial incident which may operate upon this intolerable agitation of soul. I have, indeed, no abhorrence of danger except in its absolute effect, in terror, in this unnerved, in this pitiable condition. I feel that the period will sooner or later arrive when I must abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm fear. I learn moreover at intervals and through broken and equivocal hints another singular feature of his mental condition. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions of the dwelling which he tenanted and whence for many years he had never ventured forth. In regard to an influence whose superstitious force was conveyed in terms too shadowy here to be restated, an influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit, an effect which the physique of all the gray walls and turrets and the dim tarn into which they all looked down had at length brought upon the morale of his existence. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus affected him could be traced to a more natural and far more palpable origin, to the severe and long-continued illness, indeed to the evidently approaching dissolution of a tenderly beloved sister, his sole companion for long years, his last and only relative on earth. Her decease he said, with a bitterness which I can never forget, would leave him, him, the hopeless and the frail, the last of the ancient race of the ushers. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, for so she was called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment, and without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment, not unmingled with dread, and yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me as my eyes followed her retreating steps. When a door at length closed upon her, my glance sought instinctively and eagerly the countenance of her brother. But he had buried his face in his hands, and I could only perceive that a far more than ordinary wanness had overspread the emaciated fingers through which trickled many passionate tears. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person, and frequent, although transient, affections of a partially cataleptical character were the unusual diagnosis. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady and had not betaken herself finally to bed. But on the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed, as her brother told me at night, with inexpressible agitation, to the prostrating power of the destroyer, 
and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should attain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned by either Usher or myself, and during this period I was busied in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened as if in a dream, to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar, and thus, as a closer and still closer intimacy admitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I thus spent alone with the master of the house of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies or of the occupation in which he involved me or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulfurous luster over all. His long, improvised dirges will ring forever in my ears. Among other things, I hold painfully in mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of von Weber. From the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded, and which grew touch by touch into vaguenessness, in which I shuddered the more thrillingly, because I shuddered, knowing not why. From these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me, I would in vain endeavor to adduce more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me at least, in the circumstances then surround me, there arose, out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas, an intensity of intolerable awe. No shadow which felt I ever yet, in the contemplation of the certainly glowing yet too concrete revelries of Fuseli, one of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly in words. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault or tunnel, with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceedingly depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent, and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible, yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve, which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer. With the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments, it was perhaps 
the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar, which gave birth in great measure to the fantastic character of his performances. But the fervid facility of his impromptus could not be so accounted for. They must have been, and were, in the notes as well as in the words of his wild fantasias, for he not unfrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations. The result of that intense mental collectedness and concentration to which I have previously alluded is observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement. The words of one of these rhapsodies I have easily remembered. I was, perhaps, more forcibly impressed with it as he gave it, because in the under or mystic current of its meaning, I fancied that I perceived, and for the first time, a full consciousness on the part of Usher, of the tottering of his lofty reason upon her throne. The verses, which were entitled, The Haunted Palace, ran very nearly, if not accurately, thus. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's domination, it stood here, never spread opinion over fabric half so fair. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. Thus all this was in the olden time long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Wanderers in that happy valley through two luminous windows saw spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne were sitting, for by on the state his glory well befitting the ruler of the realm was seen. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came floating, flowing, flowing, and sparkling evermore a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing in voices of surpassing beauty the wit and wisdom of their king. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now within that valley, through the red-litten windows, see vast forms that move fantastically to a discord melody, while like a rapid, ghastly river, through the pale door a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh but smile no more. I well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us into a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of ushers which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pertinency with which he maintained it. This opinion, in its general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. But in his disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character. 
and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentence had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in the order of their arrangement as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them, and the decayed trees which stood around, above all, in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn, its evidence, the evidence of the sentence was to be seen, he said, and I here started as he spoke, in the gradual, yelped, certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent, yet importunate and terrible influence which for centuries had moldered the destinies of his family, and which made him what I now saw him what he was. Such opinions need no comment, and I will make none. Our books, the books which for years had formed no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were as might be supposed in strict keeping with this character of phantasm. He poured together over such works as were not Edgestray, Ressant, The Bestflicker of Macalemi, The Heaven and Hell of Schwentmore, the Subterranean Voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, The Chirkansi of Robert Flood, of Jean de Indy, and de la Chambre, The Journey into the Blue Distance of Tarek, and The City of the Sun, Campanella. One favorite volume was a small Octavio edition of Dictatorium, Incorrigitorium, by the Dominican Emic de Goyne, and there were passages of Pompeius Mela about the old African satyrs and of Egyptians over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the pursual of an exceedingly rare and curious book in Quattro Gothic, the Manual of a Forgotten Church, the Vigere Motorium Seculum Corum Estelle Magentei. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work, and of its probable influence upon the hypochondriac, when one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline was no more, he stated his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight, previously to its final internment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned for this singular proceeding was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolution, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased, of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical men, and of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I met upon the staircase on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded at best but a harmless and by no means unnatural precaution. 
At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it, and which had been so long unopened that our torches half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light, lying at great depth, immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment. It had been used, apparently, in more futile times, for the worst purposes of a dojon keep, and in later days as a place of deposit for powder, or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it were carefully sheathed with copper. The door, of massive iron, had been also similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp, grating sound as it moved upon its hinges. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin, and looked upon the face of the tenant, a striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and Usher, divining perhaps my thought, murmured out some words for which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that sympathies of a scarcity intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual in all maladies, of a strictly catacryptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip, which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid and, having secured the door of iron, made our way, with toil, into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. And now, some days of bitter grief having elapsed, an observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend. His ordinary manner had vanished, his ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried, unequal, and objectionless steps. The pallor of his countenance assumed, if possible, a more ghastly hue, but the luminous of his eye had utterly gone out. The once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more, and a tremulous quaver, as if of extreme terror, habitually characterized his utterances. There were times, indeed, when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage. At times, again, I was obliged to resolve all that into the mere inexplicable vagarities of madness, for I beheld him gazing upon vacantly for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention as if listening to some imaginary sound. It was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt creeping upon me by slow yet certain degrees the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was especially upon retiring to 
bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of the Lady Madeline within the donjon, that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch. While the hours waned and waned away, I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me. I endeavored to believe that much, if not all, of what I felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room, of the dark and tattered draperies which, tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest, swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls, and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed. But my efforts were fruitless. An irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly ceaseless alarm. Shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows, and peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber, hearkened. I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm at long intervals. I knew not whence, overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, unaccountable yet unendurable. I threw on my clothes with haste, for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night, and endeavored to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which I had fallen by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment. I had taken but few turns in this manner, when a light step on an adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognized it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward, he rapped with a gentle touch at my door and entered bearing a lamp. His countenance was unusual, cadaverously wan, but moreover, there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor. His air appalled me but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. Uh, you have not seen it, he said abruptly, after having stared about him for some moments in silence. You have not then seen it, but stay, you will. Thus speaking, and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements and threw it freely open to the storm. The impetuous fury of the enduring gust nearly lifted us from our feet. It was, indeed, a temptuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vicinity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind and the exceeding density did not prevent our perceiving this. Yet we had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning. But the undersurfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapor, as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us, were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. "'You must not, you shall not behold this,' said I, shudderingly to Usher, 
as I led him with a gentle violence from the window to a seat. These appearances which bewildered you are merely electrical phenomena not uncommon, or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank mismania of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favorite romances I will read, and you shall listen, and so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Canning, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's, more in sad jest than in earnest, for in truth there is little in its uncouth and unimaginative proxility which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual ideality of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand, and I indulged a vague hope that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief, for the history of mental disorder is full of similar anomalies. Could I have judged, indeed, by the wild, overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened, or apparently hearkened, to the words of the tale, I might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design. I had arrived at that well-known portion of the story, where Ethelred, the hero of the tryst, having sought in vain for peaceable admission unto the dwelling of her hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here it will be remembered the words of the narrative run thus. And Ethelred, who was by nature a doughty heart, and who was now mighty withal on account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who, in sooth, was an obstinate and maliceable turn, but, feeling the rain upon his shoulders, and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows, made quickly room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand, and now pulling therewith sturdily, he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder that the noise of the dry, hollow-sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence, I started for a moment, paused, for it appeared to me, although I at once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me, it appeared to me that, from some very remote portion of the mansion, there came indistinctly to my ears what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo, but a stifled and dull one certainly, of the very cracking and rippling sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was beyond doubt the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention, for amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements and the ordinary commingled noises of the still-increasing storm, the sound in itself had nothing, surely, which should have interested or disturbed me. I continued the story. But the good champion, Ethelred, now entering within the door, was sore enraged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit, but, in the stead thereof, a dragon of a scaly and prodigious demeanor, and of a fiery tongue, which sate in guard before a palace of gold with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass, with this legend in written, 
who entereth herein a conqueror hath been who slayeth the dragon the shield he shall win and ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon which fell before him and gave up his pesky breath with a shriek so horrid and harsh and withal so piercing that ethelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it the like whereof was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly, and now with a feeling of wild amazement, for there could be no doubt whatever that in this instance I did actually hear, although from what direction it proceeded I found it impossible to say, a low and apparently distant but harsh, protracted and most unusual screaming or grating sound the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural shriek as described by the romancer. Oppressed as I certainly was upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence by a thousand conflicting sensations in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting by any observation the sensitive nervousness of my companion. I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question, although, assuredly, a strange alteration had during the last few minutes taken place in his demeanor. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair, so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep from the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it. Friend profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea. He rocked from side to side with a gentle yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken notice of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot which thus proceeded. And now the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield and of the breaking up of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him and approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle to where the shield was upon the wall, which ensooth it feet upon the silver floor with a mighty great and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than as if a shield of brass had indeed at the moment fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct hollow metallic and clangorous yet apparently muffled reverberation, completely unnerved. I leaped to my feet but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quavered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur as is unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, 
I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it? Yes, I hear it, and have heard it. Long, long, many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dared not, oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am, I dared not, I, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb, said I. Not that my senses were acute. I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago yet. I dared not, I dared not speak. And now, tonight, Ethered, ha, ha, the breaking of the hermit's door, and the death cry of the dragon, and the clangor of the shield, say, rather, the rendering of her coffin, and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison, and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not her in? My haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman here, he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllabus as if, in the effort, he were giving up his soul. Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door. As if in superhuman energy of his utterance there had been found the potency of a spell. The huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back upon the instant their ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then without these doors there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the lady, Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes in the evidence of some bitter struggles upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low, moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and her violent and now final death agonies bore him to the floor a corpse and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full setting, the blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure, of which I have before spoken as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous, shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep, and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. <laughs>